targeting functions of Google, Facebook, and other leading advertisers and marketers. Again, this is about now using these very advanced tools to make predictions about you in milliseconds and connecting these tools to real-time targeting advertising and marketing engines so that they can use their insights to influence you. That's Jeff Chester, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Jeff Chester and Catherine Montgomery on the commercial surveillance culture. Tim Berners-Lee, the founder of the World Wide Web, once described the Internet as a permissionless space for creativity, innovation, and free expression. In the early days, you may recall, the Internet was also called the Information Superhighway. It would be open, free, and with no advertising. It hasn't quite worked out that way. Tech giants like Facebook and Google control a huge percentage of traffic on the Internet with algorithms designed with just one priority in mind. Make that cash register ring. In turning the Internet into an ATM machine, the tech giants have amassed huge amounts of personal information about you. They know your likes and dislikes. Right now, Facebook, with billions of users, is mired in controversy. Its platform has been a forum for polarizing content, ranging from hate and bigotry to misinformation and human trafficking. Calls are getting louder and louder for meaningful regulation. Our guests today are Jeff Chester and Catherine Montgomery. Jeff Chester is executive director of the Center for Digital Democracy, CDD, a Washington, D.C. nonprofit organization advocating for citizens, consumers, and other stakeholders on digital privacy and consumer protection online. The Center for Digital Democracy led the campaign for the enactment of the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, known as COPPA. Our other guest is Catherine Montgomery. She's Professor Emerita at the School of Communication at American University and Research Director with the Center for Digital Democracy. She's the author of Generation Digital, Politics, Commerce, and Childhood in the Age of the Internet. They spoke at the University of Oregon in Eugene. We begin with Catherine Montgomery. Jeff and I have been working together for about 30 years at two separate nonprofit organizations, uh, one that we co-founded in 1991, the Center for Media Education, and the other in 2001, which has really continued the center's work, and that's the Center for Digital Democracy. The mission of both of these organizations really fundamentally is to promote the democratic potential of the digital media system. Our work is really focused on uh, research-based advocacy. And the kind of research we do is to analyze on an ongoing basis, the tech, media, and advertising industries and how they work together. We've been really tracking this marketplace since the 1990s, and we look at emerging strategies, at 
technological innovation at practices and operations. And we often see our work as a kind of early warning system, particularly to advocates and policymakers and the public about concerns that we have and issues we believe need to be addressed through policy. We've done a lot of coalition building across a variety of different issue areas and constituencies, both internationally and uh, domestically. And we've also found our work spanning a number of different issues across consumer protection and digital rights and privacy and children and youth to media ownership, antitrust, tech accountability, health, democratic participation, all of which are affected by this commercial system that we're that's part of so much a part of our contemporary society. We also engage in strategic policy intervention through regulatory agencies, Congress as well as state AGs and other arenas. So we're gonna really focus on four major themes today. One, we're gonna spend a, a few minutes really talking about the early roots of today's digital media system. And particularly at the efforts by our organization and others with whom we've worked over the years to intervene through policy and uh, regulation as the system was evolving, because we really believe you can't understand the current system without seeing where it came from and what the forces have been that have helped to shape it. Then we'll talk about with the key features of today's contemporary commercial surveillance culture. Uh, which is a complicated one, and we'll try to break it down into the key elements that we think are important to understand to get a handle on it. We'll talk as well about some of the recent research across these different arenas, all of which are part of the system, and some of the advocacy work we've been doing uh, in those areas as well. And then finally, we will address, identify, and explain some of the current policy openings in the era of what's now being called tech accountability. That's a, a term that we're hearing much more these days. So I'm gonna begin with a video that is from the industry, and there are quite a few of them out there, is I think a good sort of illustration of the way this contemporary commercial surveillance machine, as we're calling it, works. It's really emblematic of that. So I'm gonna start with that for just about a little over a minute. In today's digitally connected world, consumers are exposed to countless brand messages per day, and it's easy to ignore the noise if the message isn't timely, relevant, and personalized. As the saying goes, you only get one chance at a first impression. So advertisers have to make each brand engagement stand out from the crowd. But how do you know who your target audience is, what attributes define them, where they shop, what products they're looking for, what they'll buy next? and what message they're most likely to respond to. If you want to understand consumers in today's data economy, you need more than a data management platform, or DMP. You need Turbine, Zaxxis's data platform for audience intelligence, insights, planning, and activation. Turbine is the industry's leading real-time data platform, unifying consumer data across all addressable channels and devices. Turbine's people-centric identity enables marketers to better understand how consumer propensities differ from screen to screen and personalize each message by device and format based on their consumer's behavioral patterns. Simply put, Turbine turns raw, disparate consumer data into highly targeted, actionable audience segments that power smarter media activation across all screens. 
turbine collects and analyzes 200,000 consumer data points per second and applies advanced statistics and machine learning to know what consumers are doing now and to predict what they'll do next. With its holistic consumer view, Turbine empowers Zaxxis to help marketers harness the power of big data, coupled with programmatic media, delivering a strategic advantage for audience planning and media activation. We're at an important crossroads now with our digital media system, which we're going to, to come to uh, later on in this discussion. But it's useful, in fact, to be guided by media history and the history of, of communications policy in the United States. And one reason why we established the Center for Media Education in Washington, D.C. in 1991 is that we understood that, in fact, the new media system was coming. It was called the Information uh, Superhighway. Uh, the, the Clinton administration called it the National Information Infrastructure, which is important to think about today, uh, given the proposals of the Biden administration to deploy uh, a broadband as a part of the infrastructure uh, legislation. And we understood that, you know, people were really articulating their aspirations and hopes and their beliefs that the Internet would, in fact, be a different media system, would be intrinsically democratic. It would provide a range of, of services. Uh, it did, would not need uh, regulation. Indeed, it would not have any advertising in it. And Jer John Perry Barlow, who was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead and is the co-founder of uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, you know, wrote a manifesto of cyberspace where he was, in fact, you know, predicting all these things. This was going to be a, a system unlike any other communication system. And then Vice President Al Gore um, also articulated a vision for it. But we understood being, in, in fact, uh, historians of uh, the previous media systems of broadcasting, radio, television, cable television, that public policy would play a role shaping the future of the Internet. As Jeff was saying, at that time, in the early 90s, most people weren't really believing in any advertising on the Internet. It was really not thought about. But we were following very closely what the plans were of the advertising industry for this new medium, which was going to follow in the footsteps in many ways of previous media. Uh, and one of the key books that was so fundamental in influencing the whole dot-com movement was uh, called The One-to-One -One Future, which was published in 1993. It really became the kind of Bible for this emerging early digital marketing industry. Its concept really was that you need to learn everything you can through data about each of your customers and establish ongoing personal relationships with those customers to be successful. And this model is really what helped usher in today's commercial system, which is now based on massive data collection, profiling, and personal personalization. But what was so interesting to us is that while this book was widely read within the dot-com industry and, you know, it was, it was a real influence on them, policymakers really were not paying much attention to it. They were really thinking about the promise of this new medium without really understanding the forces that were already at play in shaping it. So what we did along with uh, colleagues is organize, and we really spearheaded it, uh, the kind of the first public interest coalition to articulate a set of principles and policies that should guide the development 
uh, then the information superhighway. And we brought together because we understood the internet was about more than just privacy, more than just about access. It was about the future of the workplace, et cetera. So we were able to bring together a number of groups. And what we also wanted to do was to frame this for the public and to let the public know about all these debates. So this is an example in New York Times story that we were able to place basically saying, look, this is a public system as well, not just a privatized commercial system. And then as part of the advocacy, and what I mean, one of the key, I think, uh, strategies, but also kind of obligations for U.S. communications policy advocates is the principles that have proven important in the past need to be brought into the the current system. So we've had a policy for decades of so-called universal service that everyone, regardless of your income, would have access to basic phone service. We felt we needed to make sure that everyone had basic access to the internet. And indeed, one of the outcomes of our organizing became the E-rate, which is subsidized uh, schools and libraries to have broadband access. But we did a study uh, that showed that, in fact, the phone companies were bypassing low income uh, and communities of color as they uh, deployed broadband networks, another way of our attempting to frame the issue. And then as part of our ongoing industry research, what we were able to do is to document how, in fact, the cable and telephone industry, this was kind of an obscure paper passed out at a national cable show, because it was clear that it was going to be the cable and phone industry for the most part that delivered what was then low bandwidth uh, why internet access but would eventually become broadband access and what this white paper d- did was give the basic model and uh, that what ultimately became the network neutrality fight Bro- uh, companies you will be able to control people's access you'll be able to charge more money if you want high-speed access you'll be able to charge content competitors if they want access so here in fact we were able to expose and organize around the plans for a few companies to once again monopolize the future of the broadband media and as, as I said, that became uh, key to what was then open access and continues today as the network neutrality fight. When we think about where we are today with the major concerns about the role of these tech companies in surveillance culture, uh, it's important to understand that in the early days when we might have had an opportunity to regulate the Internet, the official policy of the White House was hands off. There would be no no regulation of this industry. Uh, It it could flourish without any of it. Uh, The chief senior advisor for policy development to the president, to President Clinton, Ira Magaziner, uh, talked about industry self-regulation being sufficient for any problems that we might encounter. And uh, to do anything else, to have the government play a role really would turn the government into a federal nanny. However, in Europe, there was a different approach because the EU particularly was concerned about privacy and had a rights-based approach to privacy. And clearly, everyone was aware, if you looked at it closely, that this was a medium that raised serious, serious concerns about privacy. And if, at the very least, we needed protections for privacy, for consumer privacy. Uh, In the US, we weren't really thinking about that in Europe with a rights-based approach. Uh, Actually, a policy directive was enacted in 1995. It called on other nations to comply. Um, If if their um, uh, companies were gonna be dealing with any European consumers, that puts a pressure on the US government, which really 
didn't want to regulate anything. And the Federal Trade Commission did hold a series of workshops to try to address consumer privacy. We were very heavily involved in all of that. And we, as U.S. advocates, called on the Americans and, and the U.S. government to enact some baseline privacy legislation at the outset when this medium was new, uh, but we were not able to really achieve uh, results there. In the area of children, we were able to because we as an advocacy organization have been focused on concerns over children in the media prior to the introduction of the internet and had been following that marketplace as it, as it moved forward. Um, and for me, my own sort of epiphany about what this new market was going to look like came about uh, when I went to an event in New York City run by the ad industry and the dot-com industry about the future of advertising for children in this new internet medium. And it, it was an eye-opener and it, was, it rang alarm bells uh, for me because they saw, they did research showing that children, when they went online, were automatically in the flow state which meant that their critical faculties were sort of in the background, and that was a perfect environment for advertising. And then the other kind of chilling prediction was that marketers saw the opportunity in a medium that had no regulations to develop, to have product spokes characters like Ronald McDonald and Snap, Crackle and Pop develop ongoing personal relationships with children. And that was obviously in keeping with the one-to-one concept in the in the book on one-to-one -one, uh, marketing so that really led us to take some action to see if we couldn't get something for children in this new environment and the first thing we did was to file a complaint with the federal trade commission charging uh that this particular company called kidscom was deceptive uh because what it did it it, it it, because there were so many concerns about internet safety and cyber porn for young people, it built itself as a safe environment for children. But in fact, it was a market research tool, collecting enormous amounts of personal data from children. And other sites that we analyzed in our research found that companies were setting up you know, sites like the Young Investor and asking children to fill out a, um, a survey with their income, their parents' income, and children were very willingly doing this. So that was a, a kind of indicator, a big indicator of where it was all going. We took those that research and created a whole movement to uh, establish a law. And Jeff, you'll take it from there. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we thought, as Catherine said, it was very important to begin regulating what this digital media system looked like in all of, of its aspects. And since we weren't, weren't going to get a comprehensive federal privacy law to protect everyone, which we still don't have in the United States, COPPA is, in fact, the only commercial online privacy law the United States has. And, you know, we were able to frame the issue around privacy. It became a bipartisan issue, as it is today. Um, you know, we had... Um, now Senator Ed Markey, then a member of the House of Representatives, the late Senator John McCain, as, as co-sponsors, among others. And we got Congress uh, to pass this law. And I think the key issue here is, well, two things. First, we gave the Federal Trade Commission rulemaking authority, the ability to create rules when it came to children's privacy. The FTC actually had lost and still doesn't have a great deal of rulemaking authority because the advertisers went after it in the 1980s. That's a longer story. So we wanted to insert a regulatory regime again for the internet. And the strategy around, uh, around this law is this, that it requires an opt-in. 
as you know, the default is, in fact, you know, we collect unless you opt out. But by requiring an opt-in, in this case, a parent would have to say, yes, I want you to surveil my child. We were able, until very recently, we're going to talk about it, to stop the kind of data collection practices uh, emerging in the children's market that, in fact, governs everyone else in the United States once you turn 13. And then... Um, and then, it, and then we campaigned. So that was in 1998. The law went into effect in 2000. In 2012, we led a campaign that strengthened how the FTC implemented the law. And the key strategy there was we want the people in Europe have been far advanced in terms of you know, policymaking on privacy and data protection, as Catherine had said. And the, in, in, the, in Europe, cookies you know, and other personal identifiers are, con persistent identifiers are considered personal information. In the United States, the online advertising industry has lobbied so that cookies and all these other things are not considered regulatable. We were able to get COPPA to now say, all the ways you collect data, advertisers and marketers, in fact, can be regulated. So this was a major step forward uh, in terms of privacy protection. And other issues we dealt with is, we also understood it wasn't just about children, it was the future of what the whole system looks like, who owns the system. And we have, and we'll talk about this later, we have been really you know, at, at the forefront of trying to stop the growing consolidation of control over the digital commercial digital media system. In this case, this was the emblematic big deal where Google uh, purchased one of the, at the end, the, the dominant ad tech company, DoubleClick. But we have been working on media ownership, consolidation, and diversity of ownership you know, since uh, you know, the early part of the century. Now we want to share with you and describe to you uh, briefly uh, 10 key features that uh, are characterized and are emblematic of today's commercial surveillance system. Is that me? Oh, yep. so look, I'm sure you're all aware of this. And it's become much more sophisticated. You know, uh, uh, everything you do, everywhere you go, every device you have has been shaped by industry to collect huge amounts of, of data about you and to take all of that data and merge that data and analyze that data and use that in the industry's terms to make it, quote unquote, actionable in order to influence you, influence you to vote for somebody, influence you to buy something. It's happening on all devices and all applications including increasingly real-time analysis. And since we've been tracking this industry over the years, we've seen in recent years the rise of a really quite massive, excuse me, advertising technology or ad tech infrastructure, which is complex. It involves global media marketing and sales. And it's now a complicated integrated chain of relationships that really govern today's digital marketing system. Uh, it's all fueled by big data. And there are now a spectrum, a huge spectrum of software and tools out there that marketers use. Uh, big tech companies have brought a lot of these in-house and that includes in fact, even the, in the food industry, which we've just written about has established its own in-house uh, ad tech systems as well as a huge array of specialty firms and agencies. It's a very, very huge, complicated and profitable, very profitable industry. And the, and the, you know, the basic currency is your data profile. 
and you know, gathering all this data, and this is a, from a company that's actually a spinoff of Axiom LiveRamp. It's worth looking at if you haven't looked at it. And what and what the, among the things that they do is that they are they take all the data that you generate from from desperate devices, and they create basically a unified identifier so that companies can track you when you go from your PC to your mobile phone to your gaming device, etc. And you know, these these profiles, in fact, fuel. Uh, these uh, you know high-speed computer machines that make algorithmic predictions about you and 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 target you and the systems become so advanced now and we're going to talk about this as well that it's able now to predict your behavior and use all the data to shape you know your online you know environment to actually make their predictions a reality and a key part of the surveillance system, which really has exploded since about 2010 and the rise of the mobile device, is this um, geolocation system uh, that's been distributed across the country. We like to say that the U.S. and other countries, frankly, have been sliced and diced, you know, so that they understand where you are in your home, on your block, in your community. They can track wherever you go, what you what you do there. And and then able to target you um, while you know while you're on the move, so to speak. And a more recent development, uh, and really kind of sets the stage for what contemporary advertising and marketing look like, is that the broad deployment of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the basic data collection and targeting functions of Google, Facebook, and other leading advertisers and marketers. Again, this is about now using these very advanced tools to make predictions about you in milliseconds and connecting these tools to real-time targeting advertising and marketing engines so that they can use their insights to influence you. And this is the fruition of the one-to-one future. And here again, it's AI and machine learning that play a very important role in enabling marketers to create advertising that's really targeted to individuals and that can reach individuals across uh, platforms and follow individuals and customize marketing uh, in very, very personalized ways. And it includes um, various sort of branded systems like Facebook's dynamic creative, as they call it, where they have many, many thousands of different combinations of advertising that can be tailored to an individual and that can also be changed when uh, in response to the way an individual may react to an ad. So this is something new. This is something we really have not seen before, and it is woven throughout the entire digital marketing system. Another feature of uh, the contemporary marketing system, one we've always been fascinated about, and I think kind of conveys what the, you know, the paradigm of the commercial system is really about. We want to collect all your data, but we also want to be able to use it in ways to better influence your unconscious mind. And in the United States and throughout the world, centers, commercial centers have been established to take all, to, to test all these ads, both for online use and, and television use, to make sure that they really light up, they really impact our unconscious and subconscious and emotional sphere. So there are, and this has been written about for decades, but now it's a central feature of the system. There, there are these manipulators out there working with the largest companies, working with the political campaigns to bypass our rational conscious decision-making. I know it does sound kind of conspiratorial, but unfortunately they're there. Nielsen owns one of the largest ones, uh, for example, the market research company. But this is an important issue to, to also address. 
And the companies have, um, because this is about advertising and marketing and sales, or, and, or, and, and about our, res, our responses, right? Did we vote for X? Did we vote for Y, for example? So Google and Facebook and all the other advertising companies in your local grocery store and the pharmacies, et cetera, have in fact uh, de- developed a very sophisticated measurement system that knows you know, the, the consequences of what you do. Do you click on the ad? Do you then go to the store and buy the product? Do you look at one product on the phone, but buy another kind of product. All this is 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 measured, assessed in order, frankly, to make the payment function for the advertising industry uh, operate. But it gives them much more granular understanding of what we actually do. And then, of course, you know, kind of the the, the latest sector um, to take all these data collection practices and the targeted, I mean, the whole environments we live in and geolocation is part of it is in fact, you know, intelligent, aware, smart. And uh, these devices are penetrating our homes. Alexa is a bit from Amazon is a great example. You know, it's tied into its advertising and marketing, the, the wearables, uh, health wearables, while they have a, an important uh, function to play in terms of improving our health. A number of them are also connected to market and advertising ventures. So voluntarily, we're being socialized to give up much more of our information and our family information to these devices, which are now integrated into the other devices that we use, everything from the streaming television to, to our personal computers and mobile phones. You're listening to Catherine Montgomery and Jeff Chester on the commercial surveillance culture. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To place a credit card order for CDs of this program, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Our special book offer is Howard Zinn's classic, A People's History of the United States. Written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are available to you, our listeners, free of charge. Just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977 or our website, alternativeradio.org. We continue with Jeff Chester. And another feature of the system, one that we've really been, you know, on the forefront of raising and and we're still working on it, is this incredible consolidation. Because how the industry is structured is very, very important in understanding who's in charge, you know, what, what the priorities are. And there's been an unprecedented consolidation going on over the last 20 years. We've been fighting the Facebook and the Google and the other kind of consolidation. And now finally, both the federal government, the DOJ and the FTC and also state's attorney general have, have gone on to have gone now and filed to break up. Google and Facebook, and et cetera. But the consolidation continues, giving fewer people greater control of your information. And this system has reshaped and profoundly influenced many, many aspects of our society and many, many different sectors of our society. So a lot of the work that we've done in recent years has focused on individual areas and really taken a deep dive into them to understand how this surveillance system operates, how it changes these systems and changes these institutions and what the impacts are. So for example, we released a report on big food, big tech 
and the global childhood obesity pandemic that takes a very, very detailed look at how these two industries are working together to infiltrate the cultural spaces where young people are living and socializing and interacting with promotions for some of the most unhealthy foods around and largely under the radar of policymakers and even parents for that matter. So we've looked at influencers, which are a really powerful way that this is done. The whole emergence of the gaming platforms that have become vehicles for very elaborate, data-driven, highly sophisticated marketing of these unhealthy products. And also the um, streaming industry, the so-called over-the-top television industry and online video industries that have also become you know, vehicles and major ways for the food industry and soft drink industry to infiltrate and influence young people's lives. Um, uh, we mentioned earlier the work we're doing on digital politics, and I think what's so important here is that we, we were outraged about Cambridge Analytica and the scandal, and you know, Mark Zuckerberg said it was a, an aberration. It, it was in no way an aberration. It was emblematic of what goes on all the time in terms of the way this commercial marketing and surveillance system has totally transformed politics and campaigns. And it's really important for people to understand that because it has huge implications. Um, and then we, Jeff mentioned earlier, the, the work on health wearables. Again, this is another sector that is being really, really fundamentally influenced by the role of, of the digital marketing system, really. And health wearables are part of a consumer marketplace where consumer data and biometric data and all kinds of uh, sensitive data have now become fair game for personalized marketing through these devices and through other avenues where people can be influenced. And we also look very closely at the pharmaceutical industry's role in all of this, which is very, very important. And, you know, emblematic in a way of how the media system in the United States has, has, has evolved with think about consolidation of ownership in broadcasting and cable, when there has been a, 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 an independent service, in this case, WhatsApp as a messaging service, it's been acquired um, by the, the larger platform. So we and our, our, our colleague organization, Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington in particular, have been at the forefront of trying to oppose those deals. And even though we were had less success at the Federal Trade Commission, one of our strategies all along has been to leverage the regulatory regime in Europe. We have very strong, we've developed very strong relationships with European groups. We lobbied, in fact, to get the general data protection regulation passed by their parliament, one of the few U.S. groups to do it. Why? Because we knew whatever the Europeans would do would ultimately influence policymaking here. And in the case of Facebook, WhatsApp, which actually is still in the news because Facebook's now in the final stage of integrating WhatsApp uh, into its um, complete monetization uh, uh, system. Um, in the case of, uh, of, of Facebook, WhatsApp, we were able to get the Europeans uh, to act. Um, and now another place, you know, it's, look, one of the other, obviously one of the other areas is when you do have a media policy law, you have to make sure it's enforced. And unfortunately, you know, regardless of what party has been in charge of the Federal Trade Commission, which we've worked with very closely over the last 20, 25 years, you know, they have been influenced by industry. So here we have a federal law, you know, which we helped get passed, the COPPA Children's Law. And here you have Google um, violating that law. 
and they were violating that law for years. They said there were no children on the platform. They wrote their terms of service to reflect COPPA saying nobody under uh, uh, nobody 12 and under should be on the platform. Yet Google deliberately went out and created in fact, which still is the, the, the most important uh, U.S. and global business targeting children. Um, so we campaigned for a number of years, eventually with our colleagues uh, in what uh, campaign for commercial free childhood and others filed a, a complaint against uh, Google. And um, we actually, um, surprisingly, under the Trump FTC, actually won that complaint in part because we were able to interest the, the uh, New York State AG. And while the amount of um, money is, is ins insignificant, critically, uh, Google was found guilty and it had to ch uh, change its terms of service and change, change its marketing and business practices when it came to children. And it was something it had to do all over the world as a result of this uh, case. So maintaining enforcement uh, of whatever rules you have, which will help you get hopefully future rules has been one of the, of the strategies. Now, here, when, when we said earlier that the system's at a crossroads, here are some of the, just the current policy work we and our colleagues are doing. In the Congress now, there are proposals to enact a comprehensive uh, federal privacy law, better late than never. Interestingly, the companies don't want to see, we've been told, a, a federal privacy law. They like things the way they are, which is quote unquote, the Wild West. Um, and, and in the next few weeks, we'll be uh, part of a coalition calling for the U.S. To, to, in essence, establish a data protection authority like they do in Europe. As you know, as we mentioned, there are antitrust investigations uh, going on now. And the goal of those investigations from the state AG certainly is to break up Google and Facebook and potentially Amazon, and that's a real possibility. There is an incredible, you know, almost spontaneous growth uh, of a movement to, quote, ban surveillance advertising, to stop the use of cookies and other identifiers uh, from uh, being used by uh, the platforms and others. It's part of this growing tech accountability movement. When Cambridge Analytica happened, and uh, frankly, you know, former President Trump won in 2016 and and was able to use Facebook in the way that they used it to, to, to secure uh, their election victory. It did wake up a lot of people to what we've been saying for 20, 25 years that, in fact, you know, without policies, you could not count on the Internet uh, serving the democratic needs in the United States. There are other policies critically about broadband within the uh, within the infrastructure proposal, uh, you know, and other le other legislation. The United States is now in the midst of making decisions that will uh, pass out billions and billions of dollars uh, in broadband subsidies for low income Americans, uh, you know, potentially for community networks and also for industry. And um, the Federal Trade Commission now um, is um, dedicated to becoming much more uh, responsible in terms of protecting the public in, in the digital age. And we may have soon on the FTC a, um, a leading scholar, a commissioner, a Professor Lena Khan. Um, one of the things we've done at CDD is uh, spearhead the creation of a new coalition uh, that's working, uh, you know, it, it combines consumers, civil rights, uh, other organizations working together to pass these set of principles. Just today, this group met with the White House um, to talk about um, uh, appointments, nominees, uh, policymaking 
uh, around privacy, things that we want the Biden administration uh, to, to support. So it's not just passing regulation. One of our roles has been to build the basic infrastructure for more democratic uh, policymaking for media in the United States. And then, as I said earlier, and this has really been a key part of, of the strategy. Look, we're not in this alone. We have global colleagues working on many of these issues. There are advances in so many other countries, but Europe has been a particular, particularly important place um, because we have a lot of shared values and culture. There's a healthy consumer and, and privacy movement there. And over the last, I would say, more than two decades, we've worked with the leading organization that represents U.S. and EU NGOs. It's called the Transatlantic Consumer Dialogue, TACD, TACD to make advances you know, in both sides of the Atlantic, but especially working together to um, strengthen European policies around the future of the internet and digital media, because as I said, that influences U.S. policymaking. And that wraps it up. We're happy to take any questions you might have. So I'll ask quickly just two questions and let you sort of choose how you want to respond to which, which you want to respond to, um, I think. The first one was just thinking about how the Center for Media Education, your, your organization in the 90s, led the charge for the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And thinking about if you were sort of in that fight, and you still are in that fight, but if you were doing that again today, what, what, what would be different? What, would, what do we need now? Is there something different um, in today's advertising and surveillance ecosystem that would, that would require something else. And maybe connected to that, my other question has to do with your, your reflections on the growth of state, uh, sort of the interest in consumer privacy laws uh, at the state level, right? You mentioned the need for the federal privacy, consumer privacy law, a more overarching privacy law, even a data protection authority. Um, we see one of the things that, that I find it interesting is this discussion about, well, we had California, right, with the CCPA and it's since been amended. And now we have, Virginia has adopted one. We have a number of other state legislatures that are looking at laws that most often seem to look like Virginia's, so-called the Virginia model at this point. And there's been some critique that parts of that law were written by or endorsed and supported by big tech. So I wonder if you might respond to that. Let's talk about children's privacy, right? All right. We've been working on that. And we've been working on that for a number of years to get uh, what's called uh, COPPA, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act 2.0, uh, uh, passed. And there now there was a bill that was introduced this week in the United States Senate um, that was a bipartisan bill. And there's a bill that's being worked on in the House. So these things are about to come out. And sadly, and it's interesting to think about where we're, we're at 25, 30 years later since we began, because the insiders are now saying the only thing that's going to get passed in terms of privacy in this Congress is kids. So we're back so what we're gonna, what we've done now is in the legislation is we've we've removed an individual cannot control make decisions about how their data is collected and used in this kind of real time machine learning world, right? And it's and 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 so we you know and and what we're doing in the kids stuff we're hoping to do in the adult stuff, but in the legislation we've really removed the ability of the parent to consent, right? There's no data driven targeting for 12 and under. There is some, there, we've expanded the law to include teens because we always wanted to include teens because they're a key target. They do have kind of opt-in consent, but there's a stronger regulatory regime that's established specifically at the Federal Trade Commission and it gives the Federal Trade Commission much more authority. So in th we've been thinking about that and it's underway. This is really happening now and people can look up uh, Ed Markey Children's Privacy and read the bill. Look, the reason... There were, there were, there were uh, two reasons we created this new progressive coalition. One was to fight against state preemption, 
of privacy legislation, and one was to fight against what's called private right of action. The industry wants to eliminate state regulation. They were terrified of California. Now, as a result, they've been lobbying to make those privacy laws at the state level weak, but we believe state legislation on privacy is critically important, and that's where the models are. And given the fact that the federal government's likely unable to enact privacy, a strong privacy bill, we need the states. And so there are one, there's other parts of our coalition specifically working at the state level. Kathy, I'm sorry, I just... No, no, that's fine. Uh, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think we knew what was interesting when we got COPPA passed in 1998, we had a lot of pushback from people saying, you know, this, what's wrong? You know, this, this hasn't, we don't have a full-blown system here. Why do you need any laws? Well, we believe we needed laws so that we could put some constraints on this industry and keep it from developing full blown, which we were able to do, but it was limited. And you know, we've we've made some changes, as Jeff mentioned earlier, in the in the rules that were built into the way that law was designed to address some of the many new techniques that have you know been developed since. But this is an ongoing effort. And I think what's important is that now there's, a, I think, a, a realization by so many more people than even just a few years ago, how powerful this surveillance system is and what the dangers are. We felt like we were lone voices for a very long time. Thank you. Thank you for the answers and also for all of your great work in this, in this area. I'm very much wondering on the possibility of creating the social rating system or on implementing it in North America because it has been recently implemented in China, and I do believe that it may be implemented in other places too. And obviously the governments, uh, the governance in all of these countries is very different, and uh, it's not going to be existing here in the same shape that it is in China, I understand. But at the same time, though, having read like several books on automating inequality, um, on the malicious influence of algorithmic systems and algorithmic decision-making on what's going on, it seemed that it even already a little bit exists. And it's kind of scary. And this is why I was very wondering, what do you think of that? Well, Thank it you. does exist. I mean, it's existed in the commercial sphere for a long time. And we've actually written about it called e-scores. I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of scores, right? You know, uh, you know companies like Google and, and, and Facebook and marketers um, in their profiles have a lot of identify a lot of attributes. I mean, one of the key ones is your is of long term value, the LT, LTV score. So all these scores are used to say you're a, you know you're a good risk, you're a bad risk, you know you're valuable, you're not valuable. You should get a discount. You should not get a discount. You know you should be treated one way or or another. So, um, you know, it, 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 does, it does exist and there's interest in regulating it. And actually there's an Oregon-based group called the World, World Privacy Forum that's done very, very good work on this issue. The industry has these profile identifiers and the, the government can easily get access to that itself if it doesn't already have them. I hope I've answered your question. My question was um, either from the view of uh, e-commerce, data collection, or, um, or even regulation, if you could comment a little bit about how sort of cross-platform data collection is utilized or, or is regulated. And I was particularly interested in thinking of examples like how Oculus-owned Facebook collects very different data than what you would see on the social media app itself. Um, Twitch streams, uh, you know, Twitch collects very interesting data which could be utilized um, 
for marketing purposes by Amazon. I just wanted to get some sense of, of how that works and how that's regulated because I haven't been able to really, I haven't been able to figure it out myself. So it's not regulated is the short answer. I mean, you know, when, when, when the mobile phone became popular and was clear it was going to be the dominant system about 2010, 2012, I can't remember exactly when the, the marketers understood they had to go cross platform in order to, 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 to follow you wherever you went and create a kind of a single identifier. And, 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 and that's what LiveRAM does and, and, and merge all that data. So all the data that Google and, and Amazon and Facebook collect are, are all not only within the platform, the different applications. So for example, one of the things that, that Facebook's doing now, why it wants to you know, completely integrate WhatsApp into its system and, and, and eliminate WhatsApp's separate privacy policy and give it a new privacy policy for Facebook is that Facebook is now taking WhatsApp, which is usually important outside of the United States, right? Tens of millions of people, but they're transforming WhatsApp to, to basically be governed by WhatsApp for business, right? They'll be able to uh, export all of Facebook's commercial data business strategies within the app, a WhatsApp environment. So that's an example of the cross-platform, right? It's WhatsApp, it's Instagram, it's the Facebook main platform, et cetera. So they're, they're all operating that way, which is, which is part of the surveillance system. Interestingly, and it's in our report, Amazon officially integrated Twitch into the Amazon advertising platform in September of last year. So they're all doing it and no one's putting a stop to it. I mean, we're yelling and screaming, to be honest with you. But part of the problem is, you know, the regulators, uh, there's no legislation. All right. So for the Federal Trade Commission, it's a problem. There is, except for COPPA, there's no real law there that they can cite to kind of stop all this. And um, and then you're taking on very powerful companies. Right. And, and, and that's another issue right? this revolving door between the agencies and the, and the, and the industry and all that. Um, we hope to deal with it in legislation. There are very, very good people in, in, in Congress that want to deal with it. But right now, no, whatever new medium it develops becomes integrated into the platform or holding company's data collection process. That was Jeff Chester and Catherine Montgomery on the commercial surveillance culture. They spoke at the University of Oregon in Eugene. Jeff Chester is executive director of the Center for Digital Democracy, CDD, a Washington, D.C. nonprofit organization advocating for citizens, consumers, and other stakeholders on digital privacy and consumer protection online. Catherine Montgomery is Professor Emerita at the School of Communication at American University, and she's the research director with the Center for Digital Democracy. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, Vijay Prashad, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Angela Davis, Chris Hedges, Ralph Nader, Kianga Yamata-Taylor, and Tariq Ali. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, 
Jeff Chester and Catherine Montgomery on the commercial surveillance culture, and for our special book offer, Howard Zinn's classic, A People's History of the United States, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. We're making written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program available to you, our listeners, free of charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Special thanks to the University of Oregon Media Studies Program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Bruce Springsteen singing Bob Dylan's Chimes of Freedom. We're far between sundown's finish At midnight's broken toe We ducked inside the doorway Thunder crashing As majestic bells of both Struck shadows in the sound Seeming to be the chimes of freedom Flashing Flashing for the warrior whose strength is not to fight. Flashing for the refugee on his unarmed road of flight. And for each and every underdog soldier in the night, we gazed upon the chimes of freedom flashing. Well, in the city's melted furnace, unexpectedly we watch with faces hidden while the walls were tight. And as the echo of the wedding bells before the blowing rain, there's our
caught It'll buy no track of ours For their hands suspended Well, as we listened one last time And we watched with one last look Spellbound and swallowed as the tolling ended Tolling for the aching ones Whose wounds cannot be worse For the countless confused accused Misused strung out ones and worse And for every hung up person In the whole wide universe Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Can you spell L-O-V-E? Can you spell L-O-V-E-S-Y-O-U? CJSW 90.9 FM Broadcasting from the University of Calgary Loves you. to 